how you want to spend the rest of your life? Then, Rafael Urbano, I have nothing more to say to you. Please, I would like you and your puta to leave my house. My brother's eyes went flat. I ain't going anywhere. I want you both out of here. For a second, I thought my brother was going to put his hands on her. I really did. But then all the swole went out of him. He put his arm around Buddha, who for once looked as if she understood that something was wrong. I'll see you later, Ma, he said. Then he got back into the monarch and drove away. Lock the door was all she said before she went back to her room. I never would have guessed it would last as long as it did. My mother couldn't resist my brother. Not ever. No matter what the fuck he pulled, and my brother pulled a lot of shit, she was always a hundred percent on his side, as only a Latin mom can be with her querido oldest hijo. If he'd come home one day and said, Hey, Ma, I exterminated half the planet, I'm sure she would have defended his ass. Well, hijo, we were overpopulated. There was the cultural stuff and the cancer stuff, of course, but you also gotta factor in that mommy had miscarried her first two pregnancies and by the time she'd gotten knocked up with Rafa, she'd been told for years she'd never have children again. My brother himself almost died at birth and for the first two years of his life, mommy had this morbid fear, so my tias tell me, that someone was going to kidnap him. Factor in, too, that he had always been the most beautiful of boys, her total consentido, and you begin to get a sense of how she felt about the lunatic. You hear mothers say all the time that they would die for their children, but my mom never said shit like that. She didn't have to. When it came to my brother... It was written across her face in 112.2 Pac Gothic. So yeah, I figured that after a few days, she'd crack, and then there'd be hugs and kisses, maybe a kick to Buddha's head, and it would be all love again. But my mother wasn't playing, and she told him as much the next time Rafa came to the door. I don't want you in here. Mommy shook her head firmly. Go live with your wife. You think I was surprised? You should have seen my brother. He looked shit-smacked. Fuck you then, he said to mommy. And when I told him not to talk to my mom like that, he said, fuck you too. Rafa, come on, I said, following him into the street. You can't be serious. You don't even know that chick. He wasn't listening. When I got close to him... He punched me in the chest. Hope you like the smell of Hindu, I called after him. And baby shit. Ma, I said, what are you thinking? Ask him what he is thinking. Two days later, when mommy was at work and I was in Old Bridge hanging out with Laura, which amounted to listening to her talking about how much she hated her stepmother, Rafa led himself into the house and grabbed the rest of his stuff. He also helped himself to his bed, to the TV, and to mommy's bed. The neighbors who saw him told us he had some Indian guy helping him. I was so mad I wanted to call the cops, 
but my mother forbade it. If that's how he wants to live his life, I won't stop him. Sounds great, Ma, but what the fuck am I going to watch my shows on? She looked at me grimly. We have another TV. We did. A 10-inch black and white with its volume control permanently locked at two. Mommy told me to bring down a spare mattress from Doña Rosie's apartment. This is just terrible what's happening, Doña Rosie said. It's nothing, Mommy said. You should have seen what we slept on when I was little. Next time I saw my brother on the street, he was with Buddha and the kid looking awful in gear that no longer fit him. I yelled, you asshole, you got mommy sleeping on the fucking floor. Don't talk to me, Junior, he warned. I'll fucking cut your throat. Any time, brother, I said, any time. Now that he weighed 110 pounds and I had bench-pressed my way up to 179, I could be aguajero, but he just ran his finger across his neck. Leave him alone, Buddha pleaded, trying to keep him from coming after me. Leave us all alone. Oh, hi, Buddha. They ain't deported you yet? By then, my brother was charging, and 110 pounds or not, I decided not to push it. I scrammed. Never would have predicted it, but Mommy hung tough. Went to work, did her prayer group, spent the rest of her time in her room. He's made his choice, but she didn't stop praying for him. I heard her in the group asking God to protect him, to heal him, to give him the power of discernment. Sometimes she sent me over to check up on him under the pretense of bringing him medicine. I was scared, thinking he was going to murder me on the stoop, but my mother insisted. You'll survive, she said. First, I had to be led into the apartment by the Gujarati guy, and then I had to knock and be let into their room. Buddha actually kept the place pretty tight, got herself dolled up for these visits, put her son in his FOB best. She really played it to the hilt, gave me a big hug. How are you doing, hermanito? Rafa, on the other hand, didn't seem to give two shits. He lay on the bed in his underwear, didn't say anything to me, while I sat with Buddha on the edge of the bed, dutifully explaining some pill or another, and Buddha would nod and nod, but not look like she was getting any of it. And then quietly I'd ask, Has he been eating? Has he been sick at all? Buddha glanced at my brother. He's been muy fuerte. No vomiting? No fevers? Buddha shook her head. Okay, then. I got up. Bye, Rafa. Bye, dickhole. Doña Rossi was always with my mother when I returned from these missions to keep mommy from seeming desperate. How did he look? La Doña asked. Did he say anything? He called me a dickhole. I'd say that was promising. Once, when Mommy and I were heading to the path mark, we caught sight of my brother in the distance with Buddha and the brat. I turned to watch them to see if they would wave, but my mother kept walking. September brought school back, and Laura, the white girl I'd been chasing and giving free weed, disappeared back into her regular friends. She said hi in the halls, of course, but she suddenly had no more time for me. 
My boys thought it was hilarious. Guess you ain't the one. Guess I ain't, I said. Officially, it was my senior year, but even that seemed doubtful. I'd already been demoted from honors to college prep, which was Cedar Ridge's not going to college track, and all I did was read, and when I was too high to read, I stared out the windows. After a couple of weeks of that bullshit, I went back to cutting classes, which was the reason I'd been dumped out of honors in the first place. My mom left for work early, got back late, and couldn't read a word of English, so it wasn't as if I was ever in danger of being caught. Which was why I was home the day my brother unlocked the front door and walked into the apartment. He jumped when he saw me sitting on the couch. What the hell are you doing here? I laughed. What the hell are you doing here? He looked awful, had this black cold sore at the corner of his mouth, and his eyes had sunk into his face. What the fuck you been doing to yourself? You look terrible. He ignored me and went into Mommy's room. I stayed seated, heard him rummaging around for a while, and then he walked out. This happened two more times. It wasn't until the third time he was crashing around Mommy's room that it dawned on my Cheech and Chong ass what was happening. Rafa was taking the money my mother kept stashed in her room. It was in a little metal box whose location she often changed, but which I kept track of just in case I ever needed some bucks on the quick. I went into her room while Rafa was mucking around in the closet and slid the box out from one of her drawers, put it snug under my arm. He came out of the closet. He looked at me. I looked at him. Give it to me, he said. You ain't getting shit. He grabbed me. Any other time of our lives, this would have been no contest. He would have broken me in four, but the rules had changed. I couldn't decide which was greater. The exhilaration of beating him at something physical for the first time in my life or the fear of the same. We knocked this over and that over, but I kept the box from him and finally he let go. I was ready for a second round, but he was shaking. That's fine, he panted. You keep the money, but don't you worry. I'll fix you soon enough, Mr. Big Shit. I'm terrified, I said. That night, I told Mommy everything. Of course, I stressed that it had all gone down after I got home from school. She turned the stove on under the beans she had left soaking that morning. Please don't fight your brother. Let him take whatever he wants. But he's stealing our money. He can have it. Fuck that, I said. I'm going to change the lock. No, you are not. This is his apartment, too. Are you fucking kidding me, Ma? I was about to explode, but then it hit me. Ma? Yes, hijo? How long has he been doing it? Doing what? Taking the money, she turned her back to me, so I put the little metal box on the floor and went out for a smoke. At the beginning of October, we got a call from Buddha. He's not feeling well. My mother nodded, and so I went over to check. Talk about an understatement. My brother was straight delusional, burning up with fever, and when I put my hands on him, 
He looked at me with zero recognition. Buddha was sitting on the edge of the bed, holding her son, trying to look all worried. Give me the damn keys, I said. But she smiled weakly. We lost them. She was lying, of course. She knew that if I got the keys to the monarch, she'd never see that car again. He couldn't walk. He could barely move his lips. I tried to carry him, but I couldn't do it, not for ten blocks. And first time ever in the history of our nabe, there was no one around. By then, Rafa had stopped making any kind of sense, and I started getting really scared. For real, I started flipping. I thought, he's going to die here. Then I spotted a shopping cart. I dragged him over to it and put him in. We good, I said to him. We great. Buddha watched us from the front stoop. I have to take care of Adrian, she explained. All mommy's praying must have paid off because we got one miracle that day. Guess who was parked in front of the apartment? Who came running when she saw what I had in the shopping cart? Who took Rafa and me and mommy and all the horse faces up to Beth Israel? That's right. Tammy Franco, a.k.a. Fly Tetas. He was in for a long, long time. A lot happened during and after, but there were no more girls. That part of his life was over. Every now and then, Tammy visited him at the hospital, but it was like their old routine. She would just sit there and say nothing, and he would say nothing, and after a while she would leave. What the fuck is that? I asked my brother, but he never explained it. Never said a word. As for Buddha, who visited my brother exactly never while he was in the hospital, she dropped by our apartment one more time. Rafa was still in Beth, Israel, so I wasn't under any obligation to let her ass in, but it seemed stupid not to. Buddha sat down on the couch and tried to hold my mother's hands, but Mommy wasn't having any of it. She had Adrian with her, and the little manganson immediately started running around and knocking into things, and I had to resist the urge to break my foot off in his ass. Without losing her poor me look, Buddha explained that Rafa had borrowed money from her and she needed it back, otherwise she was going to lose her apartment. Oh, por favor, I spat. My mother eyed her carefully. How much was it? Two thousand dollars? Two thousand dollars? In 1980? <clears throat> this bitch was tripping. My mother nodded thoughtfully. What do you think he did with the money? I don't know, Buddha whispered. He never explained anything to me. And then she fucking smiled. The girl really was a genius. Mommy and I both looked like cream shit, but she sat there as fine as anything and confident to the max. Now that the whole thing was over, she didn't even bother hiding it. I would have clapped if I had the strength, but I was too depressed. Mommy said nothing for a while, and then she went into her bedroom. I figured she was going to emerge with my father's Saturday night special, the one thing of his that she'd kept when he left. 
to protect us, she claimed, but more likely to shoot my father dead if she ever saw him again. I watched Buddha's kid happily throwing around the TV guide. I wondered how much he was going to like being an orphan. And then my mother came out with a hundred-dollar bill in hand. Ma, I said weakly. She gave the bill to Buddha, but didn't let go of her end. For a minute, they stared at each other, and then Mommy let the bill go, the force between them so strong the paper popped. Que Dios te bendiga, Buddha said, fixing her top across her breast before standing. None of us ever saw Buddha or her son or our car or our TV or our bed or the X amount of dollars Rafa had stolen for her ever again. She blew out of the terrace sometime before Christmas to points unknown. The Gujarati guy told me when I ran into him at the path mark, he was still pissed because Buddha had stiffed him almost two months' rent. Last time I ever rent to one of you people. Amen, I said. So you'd have thought Rafa would at least be a little contrite when he finally got out. Fat chance. He didn't say a thing about Buddha. Didn't talk much about anything. I think he knew in a real way that he wasn't going to get better. He watched a lot of TV, and sometimes he took slow walks down to the landfill. He took to wearing a crucifix, but he refused to pray or to give thanks to Jesus as my mother asked him to. The horse faces were back in the apartment almost every day, and my brother would look at them and for kicks say, Fuck Jesus, and that would only get them to pray harder. I tried to stay out of his way. I had finally hooked up with this girl who wasn't half as fine as Laura, but who at least liked me. She had introduced me to mushrooms, and that was how I was spending the time I was supposed to be in school, shrooming my ass off with her. I was so not thinking about the future. Every now and then, when me and Rafa were alone and the game was on, I tried to talk to him, but he never said nothing back. His hair was all gone, and he wore a Yankee cap even indoors. And then, about a month after he got out of the hospital, I was coming home from the store with a gallon of milk, high, and thinking about the new girl, when out of nowhere, my face exploded. All the circuits in my brain went lights out. No idea how long I was down, but a dream and a half later, I found myself on my knees, my face ablaze, holding in my hands not the milk, but a huge Yale padlock. Wasn't until I made it home and Mommy put a compress on the knot under my cheek that I figured it out. Someone had thrown that lock at me. Someone who, when he was still playing baseball for our high school, had had his fastball clocked at 93 miles per hour. That's just terrible, Rafa clucked. They could have taken your eye out. Later, when Mommy went to bed, he looked at me evenly. Didn't I tell you I was going to fix you? Didn't I? And then he laughed. Invierno 
From the top of Westminster, our main strip, you could see the thinnest sliver of ocean cresting the horizon to the east. My father had been shown that sight. The management showed everyone. But as he drove us in from JFK, he didn't stop to point it out. The ocean might have made us feel better, considering what else there was to see. London Terrace itself was a mess. Half the buildings still needed their wiring, and in the evening light, these structures sprawled about like ships of brick that had run aground. Mud followed gravel everywhere, and the grass, planted late in fall, poked out of the snow in dead tufts. Each building has its own laundry room, Poppy explained. Mommy looked vaguely out the snout of her parka and nodded. That's wonderful, she said. I was watching the snow sift over itself, terrified, and my brother was cracking his knuckles. This was our first day in the States. The world was frozen solid. Our apartment seemed huge to us. Rafa and I had a room to ourselves, and the kitchen, with its refrigerator and stove, was about the size of our house on Sumner Wells. We didn't stop shivering until Papi set the apartment temperature to about 80. Beads of water gathered on the windows like bees, and we had to wipe the glass to see outside. Rafa and I were stylish in our new clothes, and we wanted out, but Papi told us to take off our boots and our parkas. He sat us down in front of the television, his arms lean and surprisingly hairy right up to the short-cut sleeves. He had just shown us how to flush the toilets, run the sink, and start the shower. This isn't a slum, Papi began. I want you to treat everything around you with respect. I don't want you throwing any of your garbage on the floor or on the street. I don't want you going to the bathroom in the bushes. Rafa nudged me. In Santo Domingo, I'd pissed everywhere, and the first time Papi had seen me in action, whizzing on a street corner on the night of his triumphant return, he had screamed, What in carajo are you doing? Decent people live around here, and that's how we're going to live. You're Americans now. He had his Chivas Regal bottle on his knee. After waiting a few seconds to show that yes, I digested everything he said, I asked, Can we go out now? Why don't you help me unpack, Mommy suggested. Her hands were very still. Usually they were fussing with a piece of paper, a sleeve, or each other. We'll just be out for a little while, I said. I got up and pulled on my boots. Had I known my father even a little, I might not have turned my back on him. But I didn't know him. He'd spent the last five years in the States working, and we'd spent the last five years in Santo Domingo waiting. He grabbed my ear and wrenched me back onto the couch. He did not look happy. You'll go out when I say you're ready. I looked over at Rafa, who sat quietly in front of the TV. Back on the island, the two of us had taken guaguas clear across the capital by ourselves. I looked up at Papi, his narrow face still unfamiliar. Don't you eye me, he said. Mommy stood up. You kids might as well give me a hand. I didn't move. On the TV, the newscasters were making small, flat noises at each other. They were repeating one word over and over. Later, when I went to school... I would learn that the word they were saying was Vietnam. Since we weren't allowed out of the house, it's too cold, Poppy said once, but really there was no reason other than that's what he wanted. We mostly sat in front of the TV 
were stared out at the snow those first days. Mommy cleaned everything about ten times and made us some damn elaborate lunches. We were all bored speechless. Pretty early on, Mommy decided that watching TV was beneficial. You could learn the language from it. She saw our young minds as bright, spiky sunflowers in need of light and arranged us as close to the TV as possible to maximize our exposure. We watched the news, sitcoms, cartoons, Tarzan, Flash Gordon, Johnny Quest, The Herculoids, Sesame Street. Eight, nine hours of TV a day, but it was Sesame Street that gave us our best lessons. Each word my brother and I learned, we passed between ourselves, repeating over and over, and when Mommy asked us to show her how to say it, we shook our heads and said, Don't worry about it. Just tell me, she said. And when we pronounced the word slowly, forming huge, lazy soap bubbles of sound, she never could duplicate them. Her lips seemed to tug apart even the simplest vowels. That sounds terrible, I said. What do you know about English, she asked. At dinner, she'd try her English out on Papi, but he just poked at his pernil, which was not my mother's best dish. I can't understand a word you're saying, he said finally. It's best if I take care of the English. How do you expect me to learn? You don't have to learn, he said. Besides, the average woman can't learn English. It's a difficult language to master, he said, first in Spanish and then in English. Mommy didn't say another word. In the morning, as soon as Poppy was out of the apartment, Mommy turned on the TV and put us in front of it. The apartment was always cold in the morning, and leaving our beds was a serious torment. It's too early, we said. It's like school, she suggested. No, it's not, we said. We were used to going to school at noon. You two complained too much. She would stand behind us, and when I turned around, she would be mouthing the words we were learning, trying to make sense of them. Even Papi's early morning noises were strange to me. I lay in bed, listening to him stumbling around in the bathroom like he was drunk or something. I didn't know what he did for Reynolds Aluminum, but he had a lot of uniforms in his closet, all filthy with machine oil. I had expected a different father, one about seven feet tall, with enough money to buy our entire barrio, but this one was average height with an average face. He'd come to our house in Santo Domingo in a busted-up taxi, and the gifts he had brought us were small things, toy guns and tops that we were too old for that we broke right away. Even though he hugged us and took us to dinner on the Malecon, our first steaks ever, I didn't know what to make of him. A father is a hard thing to compass. Those first weeks in the States, Papi spent a great deal of his home time downstairs with his books or in front of the TV. He said little to us that wasn't disciplinary, which didn't surprise us. We'd seen other dads in action, understood that part of the drill. My brother, he just tried to keep from yelling, from knocking things over. But what he got on me about the most was my shoelaces. Bobby had a thing with shoelaces. I didn't know how to tie them properly, and when I put together a rather formidable knot, Bobby would bend down and pull it apart with one tug. At least you have a future as a musician, Rafa said. But this was serious. Rafa showed me how, 
and I said, fine, and had no problem in front of him, but when Bobby was breathing down my neck, his hand on a belt, I couldn't perform. I looked at my father like my laces were live wires he wanted me to touch together. I met some dumb men in the Guardia, Papi said, but every single one of them could tie his motherfucking shoes. He looked over at Mommy. Why can't he? These were not the sort of questions that had answers. She looked down, studied the veins that threaded the backs of her hands. For a second, Bobby's watery turtle eyes met mine. Don't you look at me, he said. Even on days I managed a halfway decent retard knot, as Rafa called them, Bobby still had my hair to go on about. While Rafa's hair was straight and glided through a comb like a Caribbean grandparent's dream, my hair still had enough of the African to condemn me to endless combings and out-of-this-world haircuts. My mother cut our hair every month, but this time when she put me in the chair, my father told her not to bother. Only one thing will take care of that, he said. You, go get dressed. Rafa followed me into my bedroom and watched while I buttoned my shirt. His mouth was tight. I started to feel anxious. What's your problem, I said. Nothing. Then stop watching me. When I got to my shoes, he tied them for me. At the door, my father looked down and said, You're getting better. I knew where the van was parked, but I went the other way just to catch a glimpse of the neighborhood. Bobby didn't notice my defection until I had rounded the corner, and when he growled my name, I hurried back, but I had already seen the fields and the children on the snow. I sat in the front seat. He popped a tape of Johnny Ventura into the player and took us out smoothly to Route 9. The snow lay in dirty piles on the side of the road. There can't be anything worse than old snow, he said. It's nice while it falls, but once it gets to the ground, it just turns to shit. Are there accidents, like with rain? Not with me driving. The cattails on the bank of the Raritan were stiff and the color of sand, and when we crossed the river, Poppy said, I work in the next town. We were in Perthamboy for the services of a real talent, a Puerto Rican barber named Rubio, who knew just what to do with the pelo malo. He put two or three creams on my head and had me sit with the foam a while. After his wife rinsed me off, he studied my head in the mirror, tugged at my hair, rubbed an oil into it, and finally sighed. It's better to shave it all off, Bobby said. I have some other things that might work. Bobby looked at his watch. Shave it. All right, Rubio said. I watched the clippers plow through my hair, watched my scalp appear, tender and defenseless. One of the old men in the waiting area snorted and held his paper higher. I was sick to my stomach. I didn't want him to shave it, but what could I have said to my father? I didn't have the words. When Rubio was finished, he massaged talcum powder on my neck. Now you look guapo, he said, less than convinced. He handed me a stick of gum, which my brother would steal as soon as I got home. Well, Papi asked. You cut too much, I said truthfully. It's better like this, he said, paying the barber. As soon as we were outside, the cold clamped down on my head like a slab of wet dirt. We drove back in silence. An oil tanker was pulling into port on the Raritan, and I wondered how easy it would be for me to slip aboard and disappear. Do you like negras? my father asked. 
I turned my head to look at the women we had just passed. I turned back and realized that he was waiting for an answer, that he wanted to know. And while I wanted to blurt that I didn't like girls in any denomination, I said instead, Oh, yes, and he smiled. They're beautiful, he said, and lit a cigarette. They'll take care of you better than anyone. Rafa laughed when he saw me. Ha! <laughs> you look like a big thumb. Dios mio, Mommy said, turning me around. Why did you do that to him? It looks good, Papi said. And the cold's gonna make him sick. Papi put his cold palm on my head. He likes it fine, he said. Papi worked a long 50-hour week, and on his days off, he expected quiet. But my brother and I had too much energy to be quiet. We didn't think anything of using our sofas for trampolines at 9 in the morning while Papi was asleep. In our old barrio, we were accustomed to folks shocking the streets with merengue 24 hours a day. Our upstairs neighbors, who themselves fought like trolls over everything, would stomp down on us. Will you two please shut up? And then Papi would come out of his room, his shorts unbuttoned, and say, What did I tell you? How many times have I told you to keep it quiet? He was free with his smacks, and we spent whole afternoons on Punishment Row, our bedroom, where we had to lay on our beds and knock it off, because if he burst in and caught us at the window, staring out at the beautiful snow, he would pull our ears and smack us, and then we would have to kneel in the corner for a few hours. If we messed that up, joking around or cheating, he would force us to kneel down on the cutting side of a coconut grater, and only when we were bleeding and whimpering would he let us up. Now you'll be quiet, he'd say, satisfied, and we'd lay in bed, our knees burning with iodine, and wait for him to go to work so we could put our hands against the cold glass. We watched the neighborhood children building snowmen and igloos, having snowball fights. I told my brother about the field I'd seen, vast in my memory, but he just shrugged. A brother and sister lived across an apartment four, and when they were out, we would wave to them. They waved to us and motioned for us to come out, but we shook our heads. We can't. The brother tugged his sister out to where the other children were, with their shovels and their long, snow-encrusted scarves. She seemed to like Rafa and waved to him as she walked off. He didn't wave back. American girls are supposed to be beautiful, he said. Have you seen any? What do you call her? He reached down for a tissue and sneezed down a double barrel of snot. All of us had headaches and colds and coughs. Even with the heat cranked up, winter was kicking our asses. I had to wear a Christmas hat around the apartment to keep my shaven head warm. I looked like an unhappy tropical elf. I wiped my nose. If this is the United States, mail me home. Don't worry. Mommy says we're probably going home. How does she know? Her and Bobby have been talking about it. She thinks it would be better if we went back. Rafa ran a finger glumly over our window. He didn't want to go back. He liked the TV and the toilet and already saw himself with the girl in apartment four.
I don't know about that, I said. Bobby doesn't look like he's going anywhere. What do you know? You're just a little mohon. I know more than you, I said. Bobby had never once mentioned going back to the island. I waited to get him in a good mood after he had watched Abbott and Costello and asked him if he thought we would be going back soon. For what? A visit? You ain't going anywhere. By the third week, I was worried we weren't going to make it. Mommy, who had been our authority on the island, was dwindling. She cooked our food and then sat there, waiting to wash the dishes. She had no friends, no neighbors to visit. You should talk to me, she said. But we told her to wait for Bobby to get home. He'll talk to you, I guaranteed. Rafa's temper got worse. I would tug at his hair, an old game of ours, and he would explode. We fought and fought and fought. And after my mother had pried us apart, instead of making up like the old days, we sat scowling on opposite sides of our room and planned each other's demise. I'm going to burn you alive, he promised. You should number your limbs, I told him, so they'll know how to put you back together for the funeral. We squirted acid at each other with our eyes, like reptiles. Our boredom made everything worse. One day I saw the brother and sister from apartment four gearing up to go play, and instead of waving, I pulled on my parka. Rafa was sitting on the couch, flipping between a Chinese cooking show and an all-star Little League game. I'm going out, I told him. Sure you are, he said, but when I pushed open the front door, he said, hey. The air outside was very cold, and I nearly fell down our steps. No one in the neighborhood was the shoveling type. Throwing my scarf over my mouth, I stumbled across the uneven crust of snow. I caught up to the brother and sister at the side of our building. Wait up, I yelled. I want to play with you. The brother watched me with a half grin, not understanding a word I'd said. His arm scrunched nervously at his sides. His hair was a frightening no color. His sister had green eyes and her freckled face was cowled in a hood of pink fur. We had on the same brand of mittens, bought cheap from two guys. I stopped and we faced each other, our white breath nearly reaching across the distance between us. The world was ice and the ice burned with sunlight. This was my first real encounter with Americans, and I felt loose and capable. I motioned with my mittens and smiled. The sister turned to her brother and laughed. He said something to her, and then she ran to where the other children were, the peals of her laughter trailing over her shoulder like the spumes of her hot breath. I've been meaning to come out, I said, but my father won't let us right now. He thinks we're too young, but look, I'm older than your sister, and my brother looks older than you. The brother pointed at himself. Eric, he said. My name's Junior, I said. His grin never faded. Turning, he walked over to the approaching group of children. I knew that Rafa was watching me from the window and fought the urge to turn around and wave. The gringo children watched me from a distance and then walked away. Wait, I said, but then an Oldsmobile pulled into the next lot, its tires muddy and thick with snow. I couldn't follow them. The sister looked back once, 
a lick of her hair peeking out of her hood. After they had gone, I stood in the snow until my feet were cold. I was too afraid of getting my ass beat to go any further. Rafa was sprawled in front of the TV. Hijo de la gran puta, I said, sitting down. You look frozen. I didn't answer him. We watched TV until a snowball struck the glass patio door, and both of us jumped. What was that? Mommy wanted to know from her room. Two more snowballs exploded on the glass. I peeked behind the curtain and saw the brother and the sister hiding behind a snowberry dodge. Nothing, senora, Rafa said. It's just the snow. What? Is it learning how to dance out there? It's just falling, Rafa said. We both stood behind the curtain and watched the brother throw fast and hard like a pitcher. Each day, the trucks would roll into our neighborhood with the garbage. The landfill stood two miles out, but the mechanics of the winter air conducted its sounds and odors to us undiluted. When we opened a window, we could hear and smell the bulldozers spreading the garbage out in thick, putrid layers across the top of the landfill. We could see the gulls attending the mound, thousands of them wheeling. Do you think kids play out there? I asked Rafa. We were standing on the porch, brave. At any moment, Papi could pull into the parking lot and see us. Of course they do. Wouldn't you? I licked my lips. They must find a lot of stuff out there. Plenty, Rafa said. That night, I dreamed of home, that we'd never left. I woke up, my throat aching, hot with fever. I washed my face in the sink and then sat next to our window, my brother asleep, and watched the pebbles of ice falling and freezing into a shell over the cars and the snow and the pavement. Learning to sleep in new places was an ability you were supposed to lose as you grew older, but I never had it. The building was only now settling into itself. The tight magic of the just-hammered-in nail was finally relaxing. I heard someone walking around in the living room, and when I went out, I found my mother standing in front of the patio door. You can't sleep, she asked, her face smooth and perfect in the glare of the halogens. I shook my head. We've always been alike that way, she said. That won't make your life any easier. I put my arms around her waist. That morning alone, we'd seen three moving trucks from our patio door. I'm going to pray for Dominicans, she had said, her face against the glass. But what we would end up getting were Puerto Ricans. She must have put me to bed, because the next day I woke up next to Rafa. He was snoring. Papi was in the next room snoring as well, and something inside of me told me that I wasn't a quiet sleeper. At the end of the month, the bulldozers capped the landfill with a head of soft blonde dirt, and the evicted gulls flocked over the development, shitting and fussing until the first of the new garbage was brought in. My brother was bucking to be number one son. In all other things, he was generally unchanged. But when it came to my father, he obeyed him with a scrupulousness he had never shown anybody. My brother was usually an animal, but in my father's house, he had turned into some kind of muchacho bueno. Papi said he wanted us inside. Rafa stayed inside. 
It was as if the passage to the U.S. had burnt out the sharpest part of him. In no time at all, it would spark back to life, more terrible than before. But those first months, he was muted. I don't think anyone could have recognized him. I wanted my father to like me, too. But I wasn't in an obedient mood. I played in the snow for short stretches, though never out of sight of the apartment. You're gonna get caught, Rafa forecasted. I could tell that my boldness made him miserable. From our windows, he had watched me packing snow and throwing myself into drifts. I stayed away from the gringos. When I saw the brother and sister from apartment four, I stopped farting around and watched for a sneak attack. Eric waved and his sister waved. I didn't wave back. Once, he came over and showed me the baseball he must have just gotten. Roberto Clemente, he said, but I went on with building my fort. His sister grew flushed and said something loud, and then Eric moved off. One day, the sister was out by herself, and I followed her to the field. Huge concrete pipes sprawled here and there on the snow. She ducked into one of these, and I followed her, crawling on my knees. She sat in the pipe, cross-legged and grinning. She took her hand out of her mittens and rubbed them together. We were out of the wind, and I followed her example. She poked a finger at me. Junior, I said. Elaine, she said. We sat there for a while, my head aching with my desire to communicate, and she kept blowing on her hands. Then she heard her brother calling, and she scrambled out of the pipe. I stepped out too. She was standing next to her brother. When he saw me, he yelled something and threw a snowball in my direction. I threw one back. In less than a year, they would be gone. All the white people would be. All that would be left would be us colored folks. At night, Mommy and Papi talked. He sat on his side of the table, and she leaned close, asking him, Do you ever plan on taking these children out? You can't keep them sealed up like this. They'll be going to school soon, he said, sucking on his pipe. As soon as winter lets up, I want to show you the ocean. You can see it around here, you know, but it's better to see it up close. How much longer does winter last? Not long, he promised. You'll see. In a few months, none of you will remember this, and by then I won't have to work too much. We'll be able to travel in spring and see everything. I hope so, Mommy said. My mother was not a woman easily cowed, but in the States she let my father roll over her. If he said he had to be at work for two days straight, she said, okay, and cooked enough moro to last him. She was depressed and sad and missed her father and her friends, our neighbors. Everyone had warned her that the U.S. was a difficult place where even the devil got his ass beat, but no one had told her that she would have to spend the rest of her natural life snowbound with her children. She wrote letter after letter home, begging her sisters to come as soon as possible. This neighborhood is empty and friendless. And she begged my father to bring his friends over. She wanted to talk about unimportant matters, to speak to someone who wasn't her child or her spouse. None of you are ready for guests, Papi said. Look at this house. Look at your children. Me da vergüenza to see them slouching around like that. You can't complain about this apartment. 
All I do is clean it. And what about your sons? My mother looked over at me and then at Rafa. I put one shoe over the other. After that, she had Rafa keep after me about my shoelaces. When we heard our father's van arriving in the parking lot, Mommy called us over for a quick inspection. Hair, teeth, hands, feet. If anything was wrong, she'd hide us in the bathroom until it was fixed. Her dinners grew elaborate. She even changed the TV for Papi without calling him a sangano. Okay, he said finally. Maybe it can work. It doesn't have to be anything big, Mommy said. Two Fridays in a row, he brought a friend over for dinner, and Mommy put on her best polyester jumpsuit and got us spiffy in our red pants, thick white belts, and amaranth blue chams shirts. Seeing her asthmatic with excitement made us hopeful, too, that our world was about to change for the better. But these were awkward dinners. The men were bachelors and divided their time between talking to Poppy and eyeing Mommy's ass. Poppy seemed to enjoy their company, but Mommy spent her time on her feet, hustling food to the table, opening beers, and changing the channel. She started out each night natural and unreserved, with a face that scowled as easily as it grinned. But as the men loosened their belts and aired out their toes and talked their talk, she withdrew. Her expressions narrowed until all that remained was a tight, guarded smile that seemed to drift across the room the way a shadow drifts slowly across a wall. We kids were ignored for the most part, except once when the first man, Miguel, asked, Can you two box as well as your father? They're fine fighters, Papi said. Your father is very fast, has good hand speed. Miguel leaned in. I saw him finish this one gringo, beat him until he was squealing. Miguel had brought a bottle of Bermudez rum. He and my father were drunk. It's time you go to your room, Mommy said, touching my shoulder. Why? I asked. All we do is sit there. That's how I feel about my home, Miguel said. Mommy's glare cut me in half. Shut your mouth, she said, shoving us towards our room. We sat, as predicted, and listened. On both visits, the men ate their fill, congratulated Mommy on her cooking, Bobby on his sons, and then stayed about an hour for propriety's sake. Cigarettes, dominoes, gossip, and then the inevitable, well, I have to get going. We have work tomorrow. You know how that is? Of course I do. What else do we Dominicans know? Afterward, Mommy cleaned the pans quietly in the kitchen, scraping at the roasted pig flesh, while Papi sat out on our front porch in his short sleeves. He seemed to have grown impervious to the cold these last five years. When he came inside, he showered and pulled on his overalls. I have to work tonight, he said. Mommy stopped scratching at the pans with a spoon. You should find yourself a more regular job. Papi shrugged. If you think jobs are easy to find, you go get one. As soon as he left, Mommy ripped a needle from the album and interrupted Feli de Rosario. We heard her in the closet, pulling on her coat and her boots. Do you think she's leaving us? I asked. Rafa wrinkled his brow. Maybe, he said. When we heard the front door open, we let ourselves out of our room and found the apartment empty. 
We better go after her, I said. Rafa stopped at the door. Let's give her a minute, he said. What's wrong with you? We'll wait two minutes, he said. One, I said loudly. He pressed his face against the glass patio door. We were about to hit the door when she returned, panting, an envelope of cold around her. Where did you go? I asked. I went for a walk. She dropped her coat at the door. Her face was red from the cold and she was breathing deeply, as if she'd sprinted the last thirty steps. Where? Just around the corner. Why the hell did you do that? She started to cry, and when Rafa put his hand on her waist, she slapped it away. We went back to our room. I think she's losing it, I said. She's just lonely, Rafa said. The night before the snowstorm, I heard the wind at our window. I woke up the next morning, freezing. Mommy was fiddling with the thermostat. We could hear the gurgle of water in the pipes, but the apartment didn't get much warmer. Just go play, Mommy said. That will keep your mind off it. Is it broken? I don't know. She looked at the knob dubiously. Maybe it's slow this morning. None of the gringos were outside playing. We sat by the window and waited for them. In the afternoon, my father called from work. I could hear the forklifts when I answered. Rafa? No, it's me. Get your mother. We got a big storm on the way, he explained to her. Even from where I was standing, I could hear his voice. There's no way I can get out to see you. It's gonna be bad. Maybe I'll get there tomorrow. What should I do? Just keep indoors and fill the tub with water. Where are you sleeping? Mommy asked. At a friend's. She turned her face from us. Okay, she said. When she got off the phone, she sat in front of the TV. She could see I was going to pester her about Bobby. She told me, just watch your show. Radio Wado recommended spare blankets, water, flashlights, and food. We had none of these things. What happens if we get buried, I asked. Will we die? Will they have to save us in boats? I don't know, Rafa said. I don't know anything about snow. I was spooking him. He went over to the window and peered out. We'll be fine, Mommy said, as long as we're warm. She went over and raised the heat again. But what if we get buried? You can't have that much snow. How do you know? Because 12 inches isn't going to bury anybody, even a pain in the ass like you. I went on the porch and watched the first snow begin to fall like finely sifted ash. If we die, Bobby's going to feel bad, I said. Mommy turned away and laughed. Four inches fell in an hour and the snow kept falling. Mommy waited until we were in bed, but I heard the door and woke Rafa. She's at it again, I said. Outside? Yes. He put on his boots grimly. He paused at the door and then looked back at the empty apartment. Let's go, he said. She was standing on the edge of the parking lot, ready to cross Westminster. The apartment lamps glared on the frozen ground, and our breath was white in the night air. The snow was gusting. Go home, she said. We didn't move. Did you at least lock the front door, she asked. 
Rafa shook his head. It's too cold for thieves anyway, I said. Mommy smiled and nearly slipped on the sidewalk. I'm not good at walking on this vina. I'm real good, I said. Just hold on to me. We crossed Westminster. The cars were moving very slowly, and the wind was loud and full of snow. This isn't too bad, I said. These people should see a hurricane. Where should we go, Rafa asked. He was blinking a lot to keep the snow out of his eyes. Go straight, Mommy said. That way we don't get lost. We should mark the ice. She put her hands around us both. It's easier if we go straight. We went down to the edge of the apartments and looked out over the landfill, a misshapen, shadowy mound that abutted the Raritan. Rubbish fires burned all over it like sores, and the dump trucks and the bulldozers slept quietly and reverently at its base. It smelled like something the river had tossed out from its floor, something moist and heaving. We found the basketball courts next and the pool, empty of water and parkwood, the next neighborhood over, which was all moved in and full of kids. We even saw the ocean, up there at the top of Westminster, like the blade of a long, curved knife. Mommy was crying, but we pretended not to notice. We threw snowballs at the sliding cars, and once I removed my cap just to feel the snowflakes scatter across my cold, hard scalp. Miss Laura 1. Years later, you would wonder, if it hadn't been for your brother, would you have done it? You remember how all the other guys had hated on her, how skinny she was, no culo, no titties, como un palito, but your brother didn't care. I'd fuck her. You'd fuck anything, someone jeered, and he had given that someone the eye. You make that sound like it's a bad thing. 2. Your brother, dead now a year, and sometimes you still feel fulgurating sadness over it, even though he really was a super asshole at the end. He didn't die easy at all. Those last months, he just steady kept trying to run away. They would catch him trying to hail a cab outside of Beth Israel or walking down some Newark street in his greens. Once, he conned an ex-girlfriend into driving him to California, but outside of Camden, he started having convulsions, and she called you in a panic. Was it some atavistic impulse to die alone, out of sight? Or was he just trying to fulfill something that had always been inside of him? Why are you doing that, you asked, but he just laughed. <laughs> doing what? In those last weeks, when he finally became too feeble to run away, he refused to talk to you or your mother, didn't utter a single word until he died. Your mother did not care. She loved him and prayed over him and talked to him like he was still okay. But it wounded you, that stubborn silence, his last fucking days, and he wouldn't say a word. You'd ask him something straight up, how are you feeling today? And Rafa would just turn his head like you all didn't deserve an answer like no one did. 3. You were at the age where you could fall in love with a girl over an expression, over a gesture. That's what happened with your girlfriend Paloma. 
She stooped to pick up her purse, and your heart flew out of you. That's what happened with Miss Laura, too. It was 1985. You were 16, and you were messed up and alone like a motherfucker. You were also convinced, like totally, utterly convinced, that the world was going to blow itself to pieces. Almost every night you had nightmares that made the ones the president was having in dreamscape look like pussy play. In your dreams, the bombs were always going off, evaporating you while you walked, while you ate a chicken wing, while you took the bus to school, while you fucked Paloma. You would wake up biting your own tongue in terror, the blood dribbling down your chin. Someone really should have medicated you. Paloma thought you were being ridiculous. She didn't want to hear about mutual shore destruction, the late great planet Earth. We begin bombing in five minutes. Salt 2, the day after, Threads, Red Dawn, War Games, Gamma World, any of it. She called you Mr. Depressing, and she didn't need any more depressing than she had already. She lived in a one-bedroom apartment with four younger siblings and a disabled mom, and she was taking care of all of them. That and honors classes. She didn't have time for anything and mostly stayed with you, you suspected, because she felt bad for what had happened with your brother. It's not like you ever spent much time together or had sex or anything. Only Puerto Rican girl on earth who wouldn't give up the ass for any reason. I can't, she said. I can't make any mistakes. Why is sex with me a mistake, you demanded. But she just shook her head, pulled your hand out of her pants. Paloma was convinced that if she made any mistakes in the next two years, any mistakes at all, she would be stuck in that family of hers forever. That was her nightmare. Imagine if I don't get in anywhere, she said. You'd still have me, you tried to reassure her, but Paloma looked at you like the apocalypse would be preferable. So you talked about the coming doomsday to whoever would listen, to your history teacher who claimed he was building a survival cabin in the Poconos, to your boy who was stationed in Panama. In those days, you still wrote letters. To your around-the-corner neighbor, Miss Laura. That was what connected you two at first. She listened. Better still, she had read Alas Babylon and had seen part of the day after, and both had scared her monga. The day after wasn't scary, you complained. It was crap. You can't survive an airburst by ducking under a dashboard. Maybe it was a miracle, she said, playing. A miracle? That was just dumbness. What you need to see is dreads. Now that is some real shit. I probably wouldn't be able to stand it, she said. And then she put a hand on your shoulder. People always touched you. You were used to it. You were an amateur weightlifter, something else you did to keep your mind off the shit of your life. You must have had a mutant gene somewhere in the DNA because all the lifting had turned you into a goddamn circus freak. Most of the time it didn't bother you, the way girls and sometimes guys felt you up. But with Miss Laura, you could tell something was different. Miss Laura touched you, and you suddenly looked up and noticed how large her eyes were on her thin face, how long her lashes were, how one iris 
had more bronze in it than the other. Four. Of course you knew her. She was your neighbor, taught over at Saraville High School, but it was only in the past months that she snapped into focus. There were a lot of these middle-aged single types in the neighborhood, shipwrecked by every kind of catastrophe, but she was one of the few who didn't have children, who lived alone, who was still kind of young. Something must have happened, your mother speculated. In her mind, a woman with no child could only be explained by vast, untrammeled calamity. Maybe she just doesn't like children. Nobody likes children, your mother assured you. That doesn't mean you don't have them. Miss Laura wasn't nothing exciting. There were about a thousand viejas in the neighborhood, way hotter, like Mrs. Del Orbe, whom your brother had fucked silly until her husband found out and moved the whole family away. Miss Laura was too skinny, had no hips whatsoever, no breast either, no ass. Even her hair failed to make the grade. She had her eyes, sure, but what she was most famous for in the neighborhood were her muscles. Not that she had huge ones like you. Chick was just wiry like a motherfucker, every single fiber standing out in outlandish definition. Bitch made Iggy Pop look chub, and every summer she caused a serious commotion at the pool. Always a bikini despite her curvelessness, the top stretching over these corded pectorals and the bottom cupping a rippling fan of haunch muscles. Always swimming underwater, the black waves of her hair flowing behind her like a school of eel. Always tanning herself, which none of the other women did, into the deep, lacquered walnut of an old shoe. That woman needs to keep her clothes on, the mothers complained. She's like a plastic bag full of worms. But who could take their eyes off her? Not you or your brother. The kids would ask her, Are you a bodybuilder, Miss Laura? And she would shake her head behind her newspaper. Sorry, guys. I was just born this way. After your brother died, she came over to the apartment a couple of times. She and your mother shared a common place, La Vega, where Miss Laura had been born, where your mother had recuperated after the Guerra Civil. One full year living just behind the Casa Amarilla had made a vegana out of your mother. I still hear the real Camus in my dreams, your mother said. Miss Laura nodded. I saw Juan Bo once on our street when I was very young. They sat and talked about it to death. Every now and then she stopped you in the parking lot. How are you doing? How is your mother? And you never knew what to say. Your tongue was always swollen, raw, from being blown to atoms in your sleep. Five. Today you come back from a run to find her on the stoop, talking to La Doña. Your mother calls you. Say hello to the profesora. I'm sweaty, you protest. Your mother flares. Who in carajo do you think you're talking to? Say hello, coño, to la profesora. Hello, profesora. Hello, student. She laughs and turns back to your mother's conversation. You don't know why you're so furious all of a sudden. I could curl you, you say to her, flexing your arm. And Miss Laura looks at you with a ridiculous grin. What in the world are you talking about? 
I'm the one who could pick you up. She puts her hand on your waist and pretends to make the effort. Your mother laughs thinly, but you can feel her watching the both of you. 6. When your mother had confronted your brother about Mrs. Del Orbe, he didn't deny it. What do you want, ma? Se metió por mis ojos. Por mis ojos, my ass, she had said. Tú te metiste por su culo. That's true, your brother admitted cheerily. Y por su boca. And then your mother punched him, helpless with shame and fury, which only made him laugh. Ha! <laughs> Seven. It is the first time any girl ever wanted you. And so you sit with it. Let it roll around in the channels of your mind. This is nuts, you say to yourself. And later, absently, to Paloma. She doesn't hear you. You don't really know what to do with the knowledge. You ain't your brother, who would have run right over and put a rabo in Miss Laura. Even though you know you're scared you're wrong, you're scared she'd laugh at you. So you try to keep your mind off her and the memory of her bikinis. You figure the bombs will fall before you get a chance to do shit. When they don't fall, you bring her up to Paloma in a last-ditch effort. Tell her la profesora has been after you. It feels very convincing, that lie. That old fucking hag? That's disgusting. You're telling me, you say, in a forlorn tone. That would be like fucking a stick, she says. It would be, you confirm. You better not fuck her, Paloma warns you after a pause. What are you talking about? I'm just telling you. Don't fuck her. You know I'll find out. You're a terrible liar. Don't be a crazy person, you say, glaring. I'm not fucking anyone, clearly. That night, you are allowed to touch Paloma's clit with the tip of your tongue, but that's it. She holds your head back with the force of her whole life, and eventually you give up, demoralized. It tasted, you write your boy in Panama, like beer. You add an extra run to your workout, hoping it will cool your granos, but it doesn't work. You have a couple of dreams where you're about to touch her, but then the bomb blows New York City to kingdom come, and you watch the shockwave roll up, and then you wake, your tongue clamped firmly between your teeth. And then you are coming back from Chicken Holiday with a four-piece meal, a drumstick in your mouth, and there she is, walking out of the path mark, wrestling a pair of plastic bags. You consider bolting, but your brother's law holds you in place. Never run. A law he ultimately abrogated, but which you right now cannot. You ask meekly, You want help with that, Miss Laura? She shakes her head. It's my exercise for the day. You walk back together in silence, and then she says, When are you going to come by to show me that movie? What movie? The one you said is the real one. The nuclear war movie. Maybe, if you were someone else, you would have the discipline to duck the whole thing. But you are your father's son and your brother's brother. Two days later, you are home, and the silence in there is terrible. And it seems like the same commercial for fixing tears in your upholstery is on. You shower, shave, dress. I'll be back. Your mom is looking at your dress shoes. Where are you going? 
out. It's ten o'clock, she says, but you are already out the door. You knock on the door once, twice, and then she opens up. She is wearing sweats and a Howard t-shirt, and she tenses her forehead worriedly. Her eyes look like they belong on a giant's face. You don't bother with the small talk. You just push up and kiss. She reaches around and shuts the door behind you. Do you have a condom? You are a worrier like that. Nope, she says, and you try to keep control, but you come in her anyway. I'm really sorry, you say. It's okay, she whispers, her hands on your back, keeping you from pulling out. Stay. Eight. Her apartment is about the neatest place you've ever seen, and for its lack of Caribbean craziness, could be inhabited by a white person. On her wall, she has a lot of pictures of her travels and her siblings, and they all seem incredibly happy and square. So you're the rebel, you ask her, and she laughs. Something like that. There are also pictures of some guys, a few you recognize from when you were younger, and about them you say nothing. She is very quiet, very reserved while she fixes you a cheeseburger. Actually, I hate my family, she says, squashing the patty down with a spatula until the grease starts popping. You wonder if she feels like you do, like it might be love. You put on threads for her. Get ready for some real shit, you say. Get ready for me to hide, she responds. But you two only last an hour before she reaches over and takes off your glasses and kisses you. This time your wits are back, so you try to find the strength to fight her off. I can't, you say. And just before she pops your rabo into her mouth, she says, Really? You try to think of Paloma, so exhausted that every morning she falls asleep on the ride to school. Paloma, who still found the energy to help you study for your SAT. Paloma, who didn't give you any ass because she was terrified that if she got pregnant, she wouldn't abort it out of love for you, and then her life would be over. You're trying to think of her, but what you're doing is holding Miss Laura's tresses like reins and urging her head to keep its wonderful rhythm. You really do have an excellent body, you say, after you blow your load. Why, thank you. She motions with her head. You want to go into the bedroom? Even more photos. None of them will survive the nuclear blast, you are sure. Nor will this bedroom, whose window faces toward New York City. You tell her that. Well, we'll just have to make do, she says. She gets naked like a pro, and once you start, she closes her eyes and rolls her head around like it's on a broken hinge. She clasps your shoulder with a nailed grip as strong as shit, and you know that after, your back is going to look like it's been whipped. Then she kisses your chin. 9. Both your father and your brother were sucios. Shit. Your father used to take you on his pussy runs, leave you in the car while he ran up into cribs to bone his girlfriends. Your brother was no better, boning girls in the bed next to yours. Sucios of the worst kind. And now, it's official. You are one too. You had hoped the gene missed you, skipped a generation, but clearly... You are kidding yourself. The blood always shows, you say to Paloma on the ride to school the next day. Junior, she stirs from her doze, 
I don't have time for your craziness, okay? 10. You figure you can keep it to a one-time thing, but the next day, you go right back. You sit gloomily in her kitchen while she fixes you another cheeseburger. Are you going to be okay? She asks. I don't know. It's just supposed to be fun. I have a girlfriend. You told me, remember? She puts the plate on your lap, regards you critically. You know, you look a lot like your brother. I'm sure people tell you that all the time. Some people. I couldn't believe how good-looking he was. He knew it, too. It was like he had never heard of a shirt. This time, you don't even ask about the condom. You just come inside of her. You are surprised at how pissed you are, but she kisses your face over and over, and it moves you. No one has ever done that. The girls you boned, they were always ashamed afterward, and there was always panic. Someone heard, fixed the bed up, opened the window. Here, there is none of that. Afterward, she sits up, her chest as unadorned as yours. So, what else do you want to eat? 11. You try to be reasonable. You try to control yourself, to be smooth. But you're at her apartment every fucking day. The one time you try to skip, you recant and end up slipping out of your apartment at three in the morning and knocking furtively on her door until she lets you in. You know I work, right? I know, you say, but I dream that something happened to you. That's sweet of you to lie, she sighs. And even though she's falling asleep, she lets you bone her straight in the ass. Fucking amazing, you keep saying, for all four seconds it takes you to come. You have to pull my hair while you do it, she confides. That makes me shoot like a rocket. It should be the greatest thing. So why are your dreams worse? Why is there more blood in the sink in the morning? You learn a lot about her life. She came up with a Dominican doctor father who was crazy. Her mother left them for an Italian waiter, fled to Rome, and that was it for Pops. Always threatening to kill himself, and at least once a day she would have to beg him not to, and that had messed her up good. In her youth she'd been a gymnast, and there was even talk of making the Olympic team, but then the coach robbed the money and the DR had to cancel for that year. I'm not claiming I would have won, she says, but I could have done something. After that bullshit, she put on a foot of height, and that was it for gymnastics. Then her father got a job in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she and her three little siblings went with him. After six months, he moved them in with a fat widow, una blanca querosa, who hated Laura. She had no friends at all in school, and in ninth grade she slept with her high school history teacher, ended up living in his house. His ex-wife was also a teacher at the school. You can only imagine what that was like. As soon as she graduated, she ran off with a quiet black boy to a base in Ramstein, Germany, but that hadn't worked. To this day, I think he was gay, she says. And finally, after trying to make it in Berlin... She came home. She moved in with a girlfriend who had an apartment in London Terrace. 
dated a few guys. One of her ex's old Air Force buddies who visited her on his leaves, a moreno with the sweetest disposition. When the girlfriend got married and moved away, Miss Laura kept the apartment and got a teaching job, made a conscious effort to stop moving. It was an okay life, she said, showing you the pictures. All things considered. She is always trying to get you to talk about your brother. It will help, she says. What is there to say? He got cancer. He died. Well, that's a start. She brings home college brochures from her school. She gives them to you with half the application filled out. You really need to get out of here. Where, you ask her. Go anywhere. Go to Alaska for all I care. She sleeps with a mouth guard, and she covers her eyes with a mask. If you have to go, wait till I fall asleep, okay? But after a few weeks, it's, please don't go. And finally, just stay. And you do. At dawn, you slip out of her apartment and into your basement window. Your mom doesn't have a fucking clue. In the old days, she used to know everything. She had that campesino radar. Now she is somewhere else. Her grief, tending to it, takes all her time. You are scared stupid at what you are doing, but it is also exciting and makes you feel less lonely in the world. And you are 16, and you have a feeling that now that the ass engine has started, no force on the earth will ever stop it. Then your abuelo catches something in the DR, and your mother has to fly home. You'll be fine, La Doña says. Miss Laura said she'd look after you. I can cook, ma. No, you can't. And don't bring that Puerto Rican girl in here. Do you understand? You nod. You bring the Dominican woman in instead. She squeals with delight when she sees the plastic-covered sofas and the wooden spoons hanging on the wall. You admit to feeling a little bad for your mother. Of course you end up downstairs in your basement, where your brother's things are still in evidence. She goes right for his boxing gloves. Please put those down. She pushes them into her face, smelling them. You can't relax. You keep swearing that you hear your mother or Paloma at the door. It makes you stop every five minutes. It's unsettling to wake up in your bed with her. She makes coffee and scrambled eggs and listens not to Radio Wado, but to the morning zoo and laughs at everything. It's too strange. Paloma calls to see if you are going to school, and Miss Laura is walking around in a t-shirt, her flat, skinny rump visible. 12. Then senior year, she gets a job at your high school. Of course. To say it is strange is to say nada. You see her in the halls, and your heart goes through you. That's your neighbor, Paloma asks? God, she's fucking looking at you, the old whore. At the school, the Spanish girls are the ones who give her trouble. They make fun of her accent, her clothes, her physique. They call her Miss Pat. She never complains about it. It's really a great job, she says. But you see the nonsense firsthand. It's just the Spanish girls, though. The white girls love her to death. 
She takes over the gymnastic team. She brings them to dance programs for inspiration. And in no time at all, they start winning. One day outside the school, the gymnasts are all egging her on, and she does a back handspring that nearly staggers you with its perfection. It is the most beautiful thing you ever saw. Of course, Mr. Everson, the science teacher, falls all over her. He's always falling over someone. For a while, it was Paloma until she threatened to report his ass. You see them laughing in the hallways. You see them having lunch in the teacher's room. Paloma doesn't stop busting. They say Mr. Everson likes to put on dresses. You think she straps it on for him? You girls are nuts. She probably does strap it on. It all makes you very tense, but it does make the sex that much better. A few times, you see Mr. Everson's car outside her apartment. Looks like Mr. Everson is in the hood, one of your boys laughs. You suddenly find yourself weak with fury. You think about fucking up his car. You think about knocking on the door. You think a thousand things, but you stay at home lifting until he leaves. When she opens the door, you stalk in without saying a word to her. The house reeks of cigarettes. You smell like shit, you say. You walk into her bedroom, but the bed is made. Ay, mi pobre, she laughs. No seas celoso. But of course, you are. 13. You graduate in June, and she is there with your mother, clapping. She is wearing a red dress because you once told her it was your favorite color, and underneath, matching underwear. Afterwards, she drives you both to Perth Amboy for a Mexican dinner. Paloma can't come along because her mother is sick, but you see her late that night in front of her apartment. I did it, Paloma says, cheesing. I'm proud of you, you say. And then you add, uncharacteristically, you are an extraordinary young woman. That summer, you and Paloma see each other maybe twice. There are no more make-out sessions. She's already gone. In August, she leaves for the University of Delaware. You are not surprised when, after about a week on campus, she writes you a letter with the header, Moving On. You don't even bother finishing it. You think about driving all the way down there to talk to her, but you realize how hopeless that is. As might be expected, she never comes back. You stay in the neighborhood. You land a job at Raritan River Steel. At first, you have to fight the Pennsylvania hillbillies, but eventually you find your footing and they leave you alone. At night, you go to the bars with some of the other idiots who stuck around the neighborhood, get seriously faded, and show up at Miss Laura's door with your dick in your hand. She's still pushing the college thing, offers to pay all the admission fees, but your heart ain't in it, and you tell her, not right now. She's taking night classes herself at Montclair. She's thinking of getting her Ph.D. Then you'll have to call me Doctora. Occasionally, you two meet up in Perth Amboy, where people don't know either of you. You have dinner like normal folks. You look too young for her, and it kills you when she touches you in public. But what can you do? She's always happy to be out with you. You know this ain't gonna last, you tell her. 
and she nods. I just want what's best for you. You try your damnness to meet other girls, telling yourself that they'll help you transition, but you never meet anyone you really like. Sometimes after you leave her apartment, you walk out to the landfill where you and your brother played as children and sit on the swings. This is also the spot where Mr. Der Orbe threatened to shoot your brother in the nuts. Go ahead, Rafa said, and then my brother here will shoot you in the pussy. Behind you, in the distance, hums New York City. The world, you tell yourself, will never end. Fourteen. It takes a long time to get over it, to get used to a life without a secret. Even after it's behind you and you've blocked her completely, you're still afraid you'll slip back to it. At Rutgers, where you finally landed, you date like crazy. And every time it doesn't work out, you're convinced that you have trouble with girls your own age because of her. You certainly never talk about it. Until senior year, when you meet the mujeron of your dreams, the one who leaves her moreno boyfriend to date you, who drives all your little chickies out the coop. She's the one you finally trust, the one you finally tell. They should arrest that crazy bitch. It wasn't like that. They should arrest her ass today. Still, it is good to tell someone, in your heart you thought she would hate you, that they would all hate you. I don't hate you. Tu eres mi hombre, she says proudly. When you two visit the apartment, she brings it up with your mother. Doña, ¿es verdad que tu hijo estaba rapando una vieja? Your mother shakes her head in disgust. He's just like his father and his brother. Dominican men, right, Doña? These three are worse than the rest. Afterward, she makes you walk past Mrs. Laura's spot. There is a light on. I'm going to have a word with her, the mujeron says. Don't, please. I'm going to. She bangs on the door. Negra, please don't. Answer the door, she yells. No one does. You don't speak to the mujeron for a few weeks after that. It's one of your big breakups, but finally you're both at a tribe called Quest Show, and she sees you dancing with another girl, and she waves to you, and that does it. You go up to where she's seated with all her evil line sisters. She has shaved her head again. Negra, you say. She pulls you over to a corner. I'm sorry I got carried away. I just wanted to protect you. You shake your head. She steps into your arms. Fifteen. Graduation. It's not a surprise to see her there. What surprises you is that you didn't predict it. The instant before you and the mujeron joined the procession, you see her, standing alone in a red dress. She is finally starting to put on weight. It looks good on her. Afterward, you spot her walking alone across the lawn of old queens, carrying a mortar board she picked up. Your mother grabbed a second one, too, hung it on her wall. What happens is that in the end, she moves away from London Terrace. Prices are going up. The Banglas and the Pakistanis are moving in. A few years later, your mother moves, too, up to the Bergen line. Later, after you and the Mujeron are over, you will type her name to the computer, but she never turns up. 
on one DR trip, you drive up to La Vega and you put her name out there. You show a picture, too, like a private eye. It is of the two of you, the one time you went to the beach, to Sandy Hook. Both of you are smiling. Both of you blinked. The Cheetah's Guide to Love Year Zero Your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually, she's your fiancé. But hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia. She could have caught you with two. But as you're a totally batshit guero who didn't ever empty his email trash can, she caught you with 50. Sure, over a six-year period, but still, 50 fucking girls? God damn. Maybe if you'd been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you're not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita. Your girl is a bad-ass salcedeña who doesn't believe in open anything. In fact, the one thing she warned you about that she swore she would never forgive was cheating. I'll put a machete in you, she promised. And of course, you swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't. You swore you wouldn't. And you did. She'll stick around for a few months because you dated for a long, long time. Because you went through much together. Her father's death, your tenure madness, her bar exam passed on the third attempt. And because love, real love, is not so easily shed. Over a tortured six-month period, you will fly to the DR, to Mexico for the funeral of a friend, to New Zealand. You will walk the beach where they filmed the piano, something she's always wanted to do, and now, in penitent desperation, you give it to her. She is immensely sad on that beach, and she walks up and down the shining sand alone, bare feet in the freezing water, and when you try to hug her, she says, don't. She stares at the rocks jutting out of the water, the wind taking her hair straight back. On the ride back to the hotel, up through those wild steeps, you pick up a pair of hitchhikers, a couple so mixed it's ridiculous and so giddy with love that you almost throw them out the car. She says nothing. Later in the hotel, she will cry. You try every trick in the book to keep her, you write her letters, you drive her to work, you quote Neruda, you compose a mass email disowning all your sucias, you block their emails, you change your phone number, you stop drinking, you stop smoking, you claim you're a sex addict and start attending meetings, you blame your father, you blame your mother, you blame the patriarchy, you blame Santo Domingo, you find a therapist, you cancel your Facebook, you give her the passwords to all your email accounts, you start taking salsa classes like you always swore you would so that the two of you could dance together, you claim that you were sick, you claim that you were weak, it was the book, it was the pressure, and every hour like clockwork you say that you are so, so sorry. You try it all, but one day she will simply sit up in bed and say, no more, and, yeah, and you will have to move from the Harlem apartment that the two of you have shared. 
you consider not going. You consider a squat protest. In fact, you say you won't go, but in the end, you do. For a while, you haunt the city like a two-bit ball player dreaming of a call-up. You phone her every day and leave messages which she doesn't answer. You write her long, sensitive letters which she returns unopened. You even show up at her apartment at odd hours and at her job downtown until finally her little sister calls you, the one who was always on your side, and she makes it plain. If you try to contact my sister again, she's going to put a restraining order on you. For some Negroes, that wouldn't mean shit. But you ain't that kind of Negro. You stop. You move back to Boston. You never see her again. Year One At first, you pretend it don't matter. You harbored a lot of grievances against her anyway. Yes, you did. She didn't give good head. You hated the fuzz on her cheeks. She never waxed her pussy. She never cleaned up around the apartment, etc. For a few weeks, you almost believe it. Of course you go back to smoking, to drinking. You drop the therapist and the sex addict groups, and you run around with the sluts like it's the good old days, like nothing has happened. I'm back, you say to your boys. Elvis laughs. It's almost like you never left. You're good for like a week. Then your moods become erratic. One minute you have to stop yourself from jumping in the car and driving to see her, and the next you're calling Asusia and saying, you're the one I always wanted. You start losing your temper with friends, with students, with colleagues. You cry every time you hear Monchi and Alexandra, her favorite. Boston, where you never wanted to live, where you feel you've been exiled to, becomes a serious problem. You have trouble adjusting to it full time, to its trains that stop running at midnight, to the glumness of its inhabitants, to its startling lack of Sichuan food. Almost on cue, a lot of racist shit starts happening. Maybe it was always there. Maybe you've become more sensitive after all your time in New York City. White people pull up at traffic lights and scream at you with a hideous rage, like you nearly ran over their mothers. It's fucking scary. Before you can figure out what the fuck is going on, they flip you the bird and peel out. It happens again and again. Security follows you in stores, and every time you step on Harvard property, you're asked for ID. Three times, drunk white dudes try to pick fights with you in different parts of the city. You take it all very personally. I hope someone drops a fucking bomb on this city, you rant. This is why no people of color want to live here. Why all my black and Latino students leave as soon as they can. Elvis says nothing. He was born and raised in Jamaica Plain. Knows that trying to defend Boston from uncool is like blocking a bullet with a slice of bread. Are you okay? He asks finally. I'm dandy, you say. Mejor que nunca. Except you're not. You've lost all the mutual friends you had in New York City. They went to her. Your mother won't speak to you after what happened. She liked the fiancé better than she liked you. And you're feeling terribly guilty and terribly alone. You keep writing letters to her, waiting for the day that you can hand them to her. 
You also keep fucking everything that moves. Thanksgiving, you end up having to spend in your apartment because you can't face your mom and the idea of other people's charity makes you furious. The ex, as you're now calling her, always cooked. A turkey, a chicken, a pernil. Set aside all the wings for you. That night, you drink yourself into a stupor. Spend two days recovering. You figure that's as bad as it gets. You figure wrong. During finals, a depression rolls over you, so profound you doubt there is a name for it. It feels like you're being slowly pincered apart, atom by atom. You stop hitting the gym or going out for drinks. You stop shaving or washing your clothes. In fact, you stop doing almost everything. Your friends begin to worry about you, and they are not exactly the worrying types. I'm okay, you tell them, but with each passing week, the depression darkens. You try to describe it, like someone flew a plane into your soul, like someone flew two planes into your soul. Elvis sits Shiva with you in the apartment. He pats you on the shoulder, tells you to take it easy. Four years earlier, Elvis had a Humvee blow up on him on a highway outside of Baghdad. The burning wreckage pinned him for what felt like a week, so he knows a little about pain. His back and buttocks and right arm so scarred up that even you, Mr. Hard Nose, can't look at them. Breathe, he tells you. You breathe nonstop, like a marathon runner, but it doesn't help. Your little letters become more and more pathetic. Please, you write, please come back. You have dreams where she's talking to you like in the old days, in that sweet Spanish of the Cibao, no sign of rage, of disappointment. And then you wake up. You stop sleeping, and some nights when you're drunk and alone, you have the wacky impulse to open the window of your fifth-floor apartment and leap down to the street. If it wasn't for a couple of things, you probably would have done it, too. But A, you ain't the killing yourself type. B, your boy Elvis keeps a strong eye on you. He's over all the time, stands by the window as if he knows what you're thinking. And C, you have this ridiculous hope that maybe one day she will forgive you. She doesn't. Year two. You make it through both semesters, barely. It really is a long stretch of shit, and then finally, the madness begins to recede. It's like waking up from the worst fever of your life. You ain't your old self, har har, but you can stand near windows without being overcome by strange urges, and that's a start. Unfortunately, you've put on 45 pounds. You don't know how it happened, but it happened. Only one pair of your jeans fits anymore, and none of your suits. You put away all the old pictures of her, say goodbye to her Wonder Woman features. You go to the barber, shave your head for the first time in forever, and cut off your beard. You done? Elvis asks. I'm done. A white grandma screams at you at a traffic light, and you close your eyes until she goes away. Find yourself another girl, Elvis advises. He's holding his daughter lightly. Clavo saca clavo. Nothing sacas nothing, you reply. 
No one will ever be like her. Okay, but find yourself a girl anyway. His daughter was born that February. If she had been a boy, Elvis was going to name him Iraq, his wife told you. I'm sure he was kidding. She looked out to where he was working on his truck. I don't think so. He puts his daughter in your arms. Find yourself a good Dominican girl, he says. You hold the baby uncertainly. Your ex never wanted kids, but toward the end, she made you get a sperm test just in case she decided last minute to change her mind. You put your lips against the baby's stomach and blow. Do they even exist? You had one, didn't you? That you did. You clean up your act. You cut it out with all the old sucias, even the long-term Iranian girl you'd bone the entire time you were with the fiancé. You want to turn over a new leaf. Takes you a bit. After all, old sluts are the hardest habit to ditch. But you finally break clear, and when you do, you feel lighter. I should have done this years ago, you declare. And your girl, Arleni, who never messed with you, thank God, she mutters, rolls her eyes. You wait, what, a week for the bad energy to dissipate, and then you start dating. Like a normal person, you tell Elvis, without any lies. Elvis says nothing, only smiles. At first, it's okay. You get numbers, but nothing you would take home to the fam. But after the early rush, it all dries up. It ain't just a dry spell, it's fucking Arakeen. You're out all the time, but no one seems to be biting. Not even the chicks who swear they love Latin guys. And one girl, when you tell her you're Dominican, actually says, hell no, and runs full tilt toward the door. Seriously, you say? You begin to wonder if there is some secret mark on your forehead, if some of these bitches know. Be patient, Elvis urges. He's working for this ghetto-ass landlord and starts taking you with him on collection day. It turns out you're awesome backup. Deadbeats catch one peep of your dismal grill and cough up their debts with a quickness. One month, two month, three month, and then some hope. Her name is Noemi, Dominican from Bani. In Massachusetts, it seems all the domos are from Bani. And you meet at Sofia's in the last months before it closes, fucking up the Latino community of New England forever. She ain't half your ex, but she ain't bad either. She's a nurse, and when Elvis complains about his back, she starts listing all the shit it might be. She's a big girl and got skin like you wouldn't believe, and best of all, she doesn't privat at all. Actually seems nice. She smiles often, and whenever she's nervous, she says, tell me something. Minuses. She's always working, and she has a four-year-old named Justin. She shows you pictures. Kid looks like he'll be dropping an album if she's not careful. She had him with a banilejo who had four other kids with four other women. And you thought this guy was a good idea for what reason, you say? I was stupid, she admits. Where did you meet him? Same place I met you, she says. Out. Normally, that would be a no-go. But Noemi is not only nice, 
she's also kind of fly, one of those hot moms, and you're excited for the first time in over a year. Even standing next to her while a hostess looks for menus gives you an erection. Sunday is her one day off. The five-baby father watches Justin that day, or better said, he and his new girlfriend watch Justin that day. You and Noemi fall into a little pattern. On Saturday, you take her out to dinner. She doesn't eat anything remotely adventurous, so it's always Italian. And then she stays the night. How sweet was that dodo? Elvis asks after the first sleepover. Not sweet at all, because Noemi doesn't give it to you. Three Saturdays in a row, she sleeps over, and three Saturdays in a row, nada. A little kissing, a little feeling up, but nothing beyond that. She brings her own pillow, one of those expensive foam ones, and her own toothbrush, and she takes it all with her Sunday morning. Kisses you at the door as she leaves. It all feels too chaste for you, too lacking in promise. No toto? Elvis looks a little shocked. No toto, you confirm. What am I, in sixth grade? You know you should be patient. You know she's just testing your ass. She's probably had a lot of bad experience with the hit-and-run types. Case in point, Justin's dad. But it galls you that she gave it up to some thug with no job, no education, no nothing, but she's making you jump through hoops of fire? In fact, it infuriates you. Are we going to see each other, she asks on week four, and you almost say yes, but then your idiocy gets the best of you. It depends, you say. On what? She is instantly guarded, and that adds to your irritation. Where was that guard when she let the Banilejo fuck her without a condom? On whether you're planning to give me ass anytime soon. Oh, classiness. You know as soon as you say it that you just buried yourself. Noemi is silent. Then she says, Let me get off this phone before I say something you won't like. This is your last chance, but instead of begging for mercy, you bark, Fine. Within an hour, she has deleted you from Facebook. You send one exploratory text to her, but it is never answered. Years later, you will see her in Dudley Square, but she will pretend not to recognize you, and you won't force the issue. Nicely done, Elvis says. Bravo. You two are watching his daughter knock around the playground near Columbia Terrace. He tries to be reassuring. She had a kid. That probably wasn't for you. Probably not. Even these little breakups suck because they send you right back to thinking about the ex, right back into the depression. This time you spend six months wallowing in it before you come back to the world. After you pull yourself back together, you tell Elvis, I think I need a break from the bitches. What are you going to do? Focus on me for a while. That's a good idea, says his wife. Besides, it only happens when you're not looking for it. That's what everybody claims. Easier to say that than, this shit sucks. This shit sucks, Elvis says. Does that help? Not really. On the walk home, a jeep roars past. The driver calls you a fucking towelhead. One of the ex-sucias publishes a poem about you online. It's called El Puto. Year 3 You take your break. You try to get back to your work, to your writing. 
you start three novels. One about a pelotero, one about a narco, and one about a bachatero. All of them suck pipe. You get serious about classes, and for your health, you take up running. You used to run in the old days, and you figured you need something to keep you out of your head. You must have needed it bad, because once you get into the swing of it, you start running four, five, six times a week. It's your new addiction. You run in the morning, and you run late at night when there's no one on the paths next to the Charles. You run so hard that your heart feels like it's going to seize. When winter rolls in, there's a part of you that fears you'll fold. Boston winners are on some terrorism shit. But you need the activity more than anything, so you keep at it even as the trees are stripped of their foliage and the paths empty out and the frost reaches into your bones. Soon, it's only you and a couple of other lunatics. Your body changes, of course. You lose all that drinking and smoking, chub, and your legs look like they belong to someone else. Every time you think about the ex, every time the loneliness rears up in you like a seething, burning continent, you tie on your shoes and hit the paths, and that helps. It really does. By winter's end, you've gotten to know all the morning regulars, and there's even this one girl who inspires in you some hope. You pass each other a couple of times a week, and she's a pleasure to watch. A gazelle, really. What economy. What gait. And what an amazing fucking cuerpazo. She has Latin features, but your radar has been off a while. And she could just as likely be a morena as anything. She always smiles at you as you pass. You consider flopping in front of her. My leg! My leg! But that seems incredibly cursi. You keep hoping you'll bump into her around town. The running is going splendid. And then six months in, you feel a pain in your right foot. Along the inside arch, a burning that doesn't subside after a few days rest. Soon you're hobbling even when you're not running. You drop in on emergency care and the RN pushes with his thumb watches you writhe and announces you have plantar fasciitis. You have no idea what that is. When can I run again? He gives you a pamphlet. Sometimes it takes a month, sometimes six months, sometimes a year. He pauses, sometimes longer. That makes you so sad you go home and lie in bed in the dark. You're afraid. I don't want to go back down the hole, you tell Elvis. Then don't, he says. Like a hardhead, you keep trying to run, but the pain sharpens. Finally, you give up. You put away the shoes. You sleep in. When you see other people hitting the paths, you turn away. You find yourself crying in front of sporting goods stores. Out of nowhere, you call the ex. But of course she doesn't pick up. The fact that she hasn't changed her number gives you some strange hope, even though you've heard she's dating somebody. Word on the street is that the dude is super good to her. Elvis encourages you to try yoga, the half-bikram kind they teach in Central Square. Mad fucking hoes in there, he says. I'm talking hoes by the ton. While you're not exactly feeling the hoes right now, you don't want to lose all the conditioning you've built up, so you give it a shot. The namaste bullshit you could do without, but you fall into it, and soon you're pulling vinyasas with the best of them. 
Elvis was certainly right. There are mad hoes, all with their asses in the air, but none of them catch your eye. One miniature Blanquita does try to chat you up. She seems impressed that of all the guys in the class, you alone never take off your shirt, but you skitter away from her corn poke grin. What the hell are you going to do with a Blanquita? Bone the shit out of her Elvis offers. Bust a nut in her mouth, your boy Darnell seconds. Give her a chance, Arleni proposes. But you don't do any of it. At the end of the sessions, you move away quickly to wipe down your mat, and she takes the hint. She doesn't mess with you again, though sometimes during practice, she watches you with longing. You actually become pretty obsessed with yoga, and soon you're taking your mat with you everywhere you go. You no longer have fantasies that the ex will be waiting for you in front of your apartment, though every now and then you still call her and let the phone ring to the inbox. You finally start work on your 80s apocalypse novel. Finally starting means you write one paragraph. And in a flush of confidence, you start messing with this young morena from the Harvard Law School that you meet at the enormous room. She's half your age, one of those super geniuses who finished undergrad when she was 19 and is seriously lovely. Elvis and Darnell approve. Aces, they say. Arleni demures. She's really young, no? Yes, she's really young, and you fuck a whole lot, and during the act, the two of you cling to each other for dear life, but afterward you peel away like you're ashamed of yourselves. Most of the time, you suspect she feels sorry for you. She says she likes your mind, but considering that she's smarter than you, that seems doubtful. What she does appear to like is your body. Can't keep her hands off it. I should get back to ballet, she says, while undressing you. Then you'd lose your thick, you know, and she laughs. I know. That's the dilemma. It's all going swell, going marvelous. And then, in the middle of a sun salutation, you feel a shift in your lower back and pow! It's like a sudden power failure. You lose all strength. Have to lie down. Yes, urges the instructor. Rest if you have to. When the class is over, you need help from the little white girl to rise to your feet. Do you want me to take you somewhere, she asks, but you shake your head. The walk back to your apartment is some baton-type shit. At the plow and stars, you fall against a stop sign and call Elvis on your cell. He arrives in a flash with a hottie in tow. She's a straight-up Cambridge Cape Verdean. The two of them look like they've just been fucking. Who's that, you ask, and he shakes his head, drags you into emergency care. By the time the doctor appears, you're crabbed over like an old man. It appears to be a ruptured disc, she announces. Yay, you say. You're in bed for a solid two weeks. Elvis brings you food and sits with you while you eat. He talks about the Cape Verdean girl. She's got like the perfect pussy, he says. It's like putting your dick in a hot mango. You listen for a bit, and then you say, just don't end up like me. Elvis grins. Shit, no one could ever end up like you, Junior. You're a DR original. His daughter throws your books onto the floor. You don't care. 
Maybe it will encourage her to read, you say. So now it's your feet, your back, and your heart. You can't run. You can't do yoga. You try riding a bike, thinking you'll turn into an Armstrong, but it kills your back. So you stick to walking. You do it one hour each morning and one hour each night. There is no rush to the head, no tearing up your lungs, no massive shock to your system, but it's better than nothing. A month later, the law student leaves you for one of her classmates, tells you that it was great, but she has to start being realistic. Translation? I gotta stop fucking with old dudes. Later, you see her with said classmate on the yard. He's even lighter than you, but he still looks unquestionably black. He's also like nine feet tall and put together like an anatomy primer. They're walking hand in hand, and she looks so very happy that you try to find the space in your heart not to begrudge her. Two seconds later, security approaches you and asks for ID. The next day, a white kid on a bike throws a can of Diet Coke at you. Classes start, and by then the squares on your abdomen have been reabsorbed, like tiny islands in a rising sea of lard. You scan the incoming junior faculty for a possible, but there's nothing. You watch a lot of TV. Sometimes Elvis joins you since his wife doesn't allow him to smoke weed in the house. He's taken up yoga now, having seen what it did for you. Lots of hoes, too, he says, grinning. You want not to hate him. What happened to the Cape Verdean girl? What Cape Verdean girl, he says dryly. You make little advances. You start doing push-ups and pull-ups and even some of your old yoga moves, but very carefully. You have dinner with a couple of girls. One of them is married and hot for days in the late 30s Dominican middle class sort of way. You can tell she's contemplating sleeping with you, and the whole time you're eating your short ribs, you feel like you're on the dock. In Santo Domingo, I'd never be able to meet you like this, she says with great generosity. Almost all her conversations start with, in Santo Domingo. She's doing a year at the business school, and for how much she gushes about Boston, you can tell she misses the DR, would never live anywhere else. Boston is really racist, you offer by way of orientation. She looks at you like you're crazy. Boston isn't racist, she says. She also scoffs at the idea of racism in Santo Domingo. So Dominicans love Haitians now? That's not about race. She pronounces every syllable. That's about nationality. Of course you end up in bed. And it ain't bad, except for the fact that she never comes and she spends a lot of time complaining about her husband. She takes, if you get my meaning, and soon you are squiring her around the city and beyond to Salem on Halloween and one weekend to the Cape. No one ever pulls you over when you are with her or asks you for ID. Everywhere you two go, she shoots photos, but never any of you. She writes her kids postcards while you're in bed. At the end of the semester, she returns home. My home, not your home, she says tetchily. She's always trying to prove you're not Dominican. If I'm not Dominican, then no one is, you shoot back. But she laughs at that. Say that in Spanish, she challenges. And of course, you can't. Last day you drive her to the airport, 
and there is no crushing Casablanca kiss, just a smile and a little gay-ass hug, and her fake breasts push against you like something irrevocable. Right, you tell her, and she says, por supuesto, and of course, neither of you do. You eventually erase her contact info from your phone, but not the pictures you took of her in bed while she was naked and asleep. Never those. Year four. Wedding invitations from the ex-Susia start to arrive in the mail. You have no idea how to explain this berserkeria. What the fuck, you say. You reach out to Arleni for insight. She turns over the cards. I guess it's what Oates said. Revenge is living well without you. Fuck, Hall and Oates, Elvis says. These bitches think we're bitches. They think we're going to give a shit about Vaina like that. He peers at the invite. Is it me? Or does every Asian girl on the planet marry a white guy? Is it written on the jeans or something? That year, your arms and legs begin to give you trouble, occasionally going numb, flickering in and out like a brownout back on the island. It is a strange pins and needles feeling. What the fuck is this, you wonder? I hope I'm not dying. You're probably working out too hard, Elvis says. But I'm not really working out at all, you protest. Probably just stress, the nurse at emergency care tells you. You hope so, flexing your hands, worrying. You really do hope so. March, you fly out to the bay to deliver a lecture, which does not go well. Almost no one shows up beyond those who were forced to by their professors. Afterward, you head alone to K-Town and gorge on Calby until you're ready to burst. You drive around for a couple of hours just to get a feel of the city. You have a couple of friends in town, but you don't call them because you know they'll only want to talk to you about old times, about the ex. You have a Susia in town too, and in the end you call her, but when she hears your name, she hangs up on your ass. When you return to Boston, the law student is waiting for you in the lobby of your building. You are surprised and excited and a little wary. What's up? It's like bad television. You notice that she has lined up three suitcases in the foyer, and on closer inspection, her ridiculously Persian-looking eyes are red from crying, her mascara freshly applied. I'm pregnant, she says. At first, you don't register it. You joke. And? You asshole. She starts crying. It's probably your stupid fucking kid. There are surprises, and there are surprises. And then there is this. You don't know what to say or how to act, so you bring her upstairs. You lug up the suitcases despite your back, despite your foot, despite your flickering arms. She says nothing, just hugs her pillow to her Howard sweater. She is a southern girl with supremely straight posture, and when she sits down, you feel as if she's preparing to interview you. After serving her tea, you ask, Are you keeping it? Of course I'm keeping it. What about Kimati? She doesn't get it. Who? You're Kenyan. 
you can't bring yourself to say boyfriend. He threw me out. He knows it's not his. She picks at something on her sweater. I'm going to unpack, okay? You nod and watch her. She is an exceptionally beautiful girl. You think of that old saying, show me a beautiful girl and I'll show you someone who is tired of fucking her. You doubt you would have ever tired of her, though. But it could be his, right? It's yours, okay? She cries. I know you don't want it to be yours, but it's yours. You are surprised at how hollowed out you feel. You don't know if you should show enthusiasm or support. You run your hand over the thinning stubble on your head. I need to stay here, she tells you later, after the two of you fumble through an awkward fuck. I have nowhere to go. I can't go back to my family. When you tell Elvis the whole story, you expect him to flip out, to order you to kick her out. You fear his reaction because you know you don't have the heart to kick her out. But Elvis doesn't flip. He slaps you on the back, beams delightedly. That's great, cuz. What do you mean, that's great? You're gonna be a father. You're gonna have a son. A son? What are you talking about? There's not even proof that it's mine. Elvis is not listening. He's smiling at some inner thought. He checks to make sure the wife is not anywhere in earshot. Remember the last time we went to the DR? Of course you do. Three years ago. Everybody had a blast except for you. You were in the middle of the great downturn, which meant you spent most of your time alone, floating on your back in the ocean or getting drunk at the bar or walking the beach in the early morning before anybody was up. What about it? Well, I got a girl pregnant while we were down there. Are you fucking kidding me? He nods. Pregnant? He nods again. Did she have it? He rummages through his cell phone, shows you a picture of a perfect little boy with the most Dominican little face you ever done saw. That's my son, Elvis says proudly. Elvis Xavier Jr. Dude, are you fucking serious with this? If your wife finds... He bridles. She ain't gonna find out. You sit on it for a bit. You're posted up behind his house near Central Square. In summer, these blocks are ill with activity, but today you can actually hear a jay chivying some other birds. Babies are fucking expensive. Elvis punches you in the arm, so just get ready, Buster, to be broke as a joke. Back at the apartment, the law student has taken over two of your closets and almost your entire sink, and most crucially, she has laid claim to the bed. She has put a pillow and a sheet on the couch. For you. What, am I not allowed to share the bed with you? I don't think it's good for me, she says. It would be too stressful. I don't want to miscarry. Hard to argue with that. Your back doesn't take to the couch at all. So now you wake up in the morning in more pain than ever. Only a bitch of color comes to Harvard to get pregnant. White women don't do that. Asian women don't do that. Only fucking black and Latina women. Why go to all the trouble to get into Harvard just to get knocked up? You could have stayed on the block and done that shit. This is what you write in your journal.
The next day, when you return from classes, the law student throws the notebook in your face. I fucking hate you, she wails. I hope it's not yours. I hope it is yours and it's born retarded. How can you say that, you demand? How can you say something like that? She walks to the kitchen and starts to pour herself a shot, and you find yourself pulling the bottle out of her hand and pouring its content into the sink. This is ridiculous, you say. More bad TV. She doesn't speak to you again for two whole fucking weeks. You spend as much time as you can either at your office or over at Elvis's house. Whenever you enter a room, she snaps shut her laptop. I'm not fucking snooping, you say, but she waits for you to move on before she returns to typing whatever she was typing. You can't throw out your baby's mom, Elvis reminds you. It would fuck that kid up for life. Plus, it's bad karma. Just wait till the baby comes. She'll fucking straighten out. A month passes. Two months pass. You're afraid to tell anybody else to share the what? Good news? Arlene, you know, would march right in and boot her ass on the street. Your back is agony, and the numbness in your arms is starting to become pretty steady. In the shower, the only place in the apartment you can be alone, you whisper to yourself, Hell, Netley, we're in hell. Later, it will all come back to you as a terrible fever dream, but at the time, it moved so very slowly, felt so very concrete. You take her to her appointments, you help her with the vitamins and shit, you pay for almost everything. She is not speaking to her mother, so all she has are two friends who are in the apartment almost as much as you are. They are all part of the biracial identity crisis support group and look at you with little warmth. You wait for her to melt, but she keeps her distance. Some days while she is sleeping and you are trying to work, you allow yourself the indulgence of wondering what kind of kid you will have. Whether it will be a boy or a girl, smart or withdrawn, like you or like her. Have you thought up any names? Elvis' wife asks. Not yet. Diana for a girl, she suggests, and Elvis for a boy. She throws a taunting glance at her husband and laughs. I like my name, Elvis says. I would give it to a boy. Over my dead body, his wife says. And besides, this oven is closed for business. At night, while you're trying to sleep, you see the glow of her computer through the open door of the bedroom, hear her fingers on the keyboard, do you need anything? I'm fine, thank you. You come to the door a few times and watch her, wanting to be called in, but she always glares and asks, What the fuck do you want? Just checking. Five month, six month, seventh month. You are in class teaching intro to fiction when you get a text from one of her girlfriends saying she has gone into labor six weeks early. All sorts of terrible fears race around inside of you. You keep trying her cell phone, but she doesn't answer. You call Elvis, but he doesn't answer either. So you drive over to the hospital by yourself. Are you the father? The woman at the desk asks. I am, you say diffidently. You are led around the corridors and finally given some scrubs and told to wash your hands and given instructions where you should stand and warned about the procedure but as soon as you walk into the birthing room, the law student shrieks, 
I don't want him in here. I don't want him in here. He's not the father. You didn't think anything could hurt so bad. Her two girlfriends rush at you, but you have already exited. You saw her thin, ashy legs and the doctor's back and little else. You're glad you didn't see anything more. You would have felt like you'd violated her safety or something. You take off the scrubs. You wait around for a bit, and then you realize what you're doing, and finally, you drive home. You don't hear from her, but from her girlfriend, the same one who texted you about the labor. I'll come pick up her bags, okay? When she arrives, she glances around the apartment warily. You're not going to go psycho on me, are you? No, I'm not. After a pause, you demand, Why would you say that? I've never hurt a woman in my life. Then you realize how you sound, like a dude who hurts women all the time. Everything goes back into the three suitcases, and then you help her wrestle them down to her SUV. You must be relieved, she says. You don't answer. And that's the end of it. Later, you hear that the Kenyan visited her in the hospital, and when he saw the baby, a teary reconciliation occurred. All was forgiven. That was your mistake, Elvis said. You should have had a baby with that ex of yours. Then she wouldn't have left you. She would have left you, Arleni says. Believe it. The rest of the semester ends up being a super-duper clusterfuck. Lowest evaluations in your six years as a professor. Your only student of color for that semester writes, He claims that we don't know anything, but doesn't show us any way to address these deficiencies. One night, you call your ex, and when the voicemail clicks on, you say, We should have had a kid. And then you hang up, ashamed. Why did you say that, you ask yourself. Now she'll definitely never speak to you again. I don't think the phone call is the problem, Arleni says. Check it out. Elvis produces a picture of Elvis Jr. holding a bat. This kid is going to be a monster. On winter break, you fly to the DR with Elvis. What the hell else are you going to do? You ain't got shit going on outside of waving your arms around every time they go numb. Elvis is beyond excited. He has three suitcases of shit for the boy, including his first glove, his first ball, his first Bosox jersey. About 80 kilos of clothes and shit for the baby mama. Hid them all in your apartment, too. You were at his house when he bids his wife and mother-in-law and daughter goodbye. His daughter doesn't seem to understand what's happening, but when the door shuts, she lets out a wail that coils about you like Constantine wire. Elvis stays cool as fuck. This used to be me, you're thinking. Me, me, me. Of course you look for her on the flight. You can't help yourself. You assume that the baby mama will live somewhere poor like Capotillo or Los Alcarizos, but you didn't imagine she would live in the Netherlands. You've been to the Netherlands a couple of times before. Shit, your family came up out of those spaces. Squatter Charles where there are no roads, no lights, no running water, no grid, no anything, where everybody's slapdash house 
is on top of everybody else's, where it's all mud and shanties and motos and grind and thin, smiling motherfuckers everywhere without end, like falling off the rim of civilization. You have to leave the rental jipeta on the last bit of paved road and jump on the back of motoconchos with all the luggage balanced on your backs. Nobody stares, because those ain't real loads you're carrying. You've seen a single moto carry a family of five and their pig. You finally pull up to a tiny little house, and out comes baby mama. Cue happy homecoming. You wish you could say you remember baby mama from that long-ago trip, but you do not. She is tall and very thick, exactly how Elvis always likes them. She is no older than 21, 22, with an irresistible Jorgina Duluc smile, and when she sees you, she gives you a huge abrazo. So the padrino finally decides to visit, she declaims in one of those loud, ronca campesina voices. You also meet her mother, her grandmother, her brother, her sister, her three uncles. Seems like everybody is missing teeth. Elvis picks up the boy. Mi hijo, he sings. Mi hijo. The boy starts crying. Baby mama's place is barely two rooms. One bed, one chair, a little table, a single bulb overhead. More mosquitoes than a refugee camp. Raw sewage in the back. You look at Elvis like, what the fuck? The few family photos hanging on the wall are water-stained. When it rains, baby mama lifts up her hands, everything goes. Don't worry, Elvis says. I'm moving them out this month if I can get the loot together. The happy couple leaves you with the family and Elvis Jr. while they visit various negocios to settle accounts and to pick up some necessaries. Baby Mama also wants to show off Elvis, Natch. You sit on a plastic chair in front of the house with the kid in your lap. The neighbors admire you with cheerful avidity. A domino game breaks out and you team up with Baby Mama's brooding brother. Takes him less than five seconds to talk you into ordering a couple of grandes and a bottle of Brugal from the nearby Colmado. Also three boxes of cigarettes, a tube of salami, and some cough syrup for a neighbor lady with a congested daughter. Da muy mal, she says. Of course, everybody has a sister or a prima they want you to meet. Que tan más buena que el diablo, they guarantee. You all barely finish the first bottle of Romo before some of the sisters and the primas actually start coming around. They look rough, but you gotta give it to them for trying. You invite them all to sit down order more beers and some bad pica pollo. Just let me know which one you like, a neighbor whispers, and I'll make it happen. Elvis Jr. watches you with considerable gravitas. He is a piercingly cute carajito. He has all these mosquito bites on his legs and an old scab on his head no one can explain to you. You are suddenly overcome with the urge to cover him with your arms, with your whole body. Later, Elvis Sr. fills you in on the plan. I'll bring him over to the States in a few years. I'll tell the wife he was an accident 
a one-time thing when I was drunk, and I didn't find out about it until now. And that's gonna work? It will work, he says testily. Bro, your wife ain't gonna buy that. And what the fuck do you know, Elvis says. It ain't like your shit ever works. Can't argue with that. By this point, your arms are killing you, so you pick up the boy in order to put circulation back in them. You look into his eyes. He looks into yours. He seems preternaturally sapient. MIT bound, you say, while you nuzzle his peppercorn hair. He starts the ball then, and you put him down, watch him run around a while. That's more or less when you know. The second story of the house is unfinished. Rebar poking out of the cinder block like horrible gnarled follicles, and you and Elvis stand up there and drink beers and stare out beyond the edge of the city, beyond the vast radio dish antennas in the distance, out towards the mountains of the Cibao, the Cordillera Central, where your father was born and where your ex's whole family is from. It's breathtaking. He's not yours, you tell Elvis. What are you talking about? The boy is not yours. Don't be a jerk. That kid looks just like me. Elvis, you put your hand on his arm. You look straight into the center of his eyes. Cut the crap. A long silence. But he looks like me. Bro, he so doesn't look like you. The next day, you two load up the boy and drive back into the city, back into Gasque. You literally have to beat the family off to keep them from coming with you. Before you go, one of the uncles pulls you aside. You really should bring these people a refrigerator. Then the brother pulls you aside. And the TV. And then the mother pulls you aside. A hot comb, too. Traffic back into the center is Gaza Strip crazy, and there seems to be a crash every 500 meters, and Elvis keeps threatening to turn around. You ignore him. You stare at the slurry of broken concrete, the cellars with all the crap of the earth slung over their shoulders, the dust-covered palms. The boy holds on to you tightly. There is no significance in this, you tell yourself. It's a Moro-style reflex, nothing more. Don't make me do this, Junior, Elvis pleads. You insist. You have to, E. You know you can't live a lie. It won't be good for the boy. It won't be good for you. Don't you think it's better to know? But I always wanted a boy, he says. My whole life, that's all I wanted. When I got in that shit in Iraq, I kept thinking, please, God, let me live just long enough to have a son, please, and then you can kill me dead right after. And look, he gave him to me, didn't he? He gave him to me. The clinic is in one of those houses they built in the international style during the time of Trujillo. The two of you stand at the front desk. You are holding the boy's hand. The boy is staring at you with lapidary intensity. The mud is waiting. The mosquito bites are waiting. The nada is waiting. 
Go on, you tell Elvis. In all honesty, you figure he won't do it, that this is where it will end. He'll take the boy and turn around and go back to the jipeta. But he carries the little guy into a room where they swab both their mouths and it's done. You ask, how long will it take for the results? Four weeks, the technician tells you. That long? She shrugs. Welcome to Santo Domingo. Year five. You figure that's the last you'll hear about it, that no matter what, the results will change nothing. But four weeks after the trip, Elvis informs you that the test is negative. Fuck, he says bitterly. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And then he cuts off all contact with the kid and the mother, changes his cell phone number and email account. I told the bitch not to call me again. There is some shit that can't be forgiven. Of course, you feel terrible. You think about the way the boy looked at you. Let me have her number at least, you say. You figure you can throw her a little cash every month, but he won't have it. Fuck that lying bitch. You reckon he must have known, somewhere inside, maybe even wanted you to blow it all up. But you let it be. Don't explore it. He's going to yoga five times a week now, is in the best shape of his life, while you, on the other hand, have to buy bigger jeans again. When you walk into Elvis's now, his daughter rushes you, calls you Dio Junji. It's your Korean name, Elvis teases. With him, it's like nothing happened. You wish you could be as phlegmatic. Do you ever think about them? He shakes his head. Never will, either. The numbness in the arms and legs increases. You return to your doctors and they ship you over to a neurologist who sends you out for an MRI. Looks like you have stenosis all down your spine, the doctor reports, impressed. Is it bad? It isn't great. Did you used to do a lot of heavy manual labor? Besides delivering pool tables, you mean? That would do it. The doctor squints at the MRI. Let's try some physical therapy. If that doesn't work, we'll talk about other options. Like? He steeples his fingers contemplatively. Surgery. From there, what little life you got goes south. A student complains to the school that you curse too much. You have to have a sit-down with the dean who more or less tells you to watch your shit. You get pulled over by the cops three weekends in a row. One time they sit you on the curb and you watch all the other whips sail past, passengers ogling you as they go. On the T, you swear you peep her in the rush hour mix, and for a second your knees buckle, but it turns out to be just another Latina mujeron in a tailored suit. Of course you dream about her. You are in New Zealand, or in Santo Domingo, or in probably back in college, in the dorms. You want her to say your name, to touch you, but she doesn't. She just shakes her head. Yeah. You want to move on, to exorcise shit, 
so you find a new apartment on the other side of the square that has a view of Harvard skyline, all those amazing steeples, including your favorite, the gray dagger of the old Cambridge Baptist Church. In the first days of your tenancy, an eagle lands in the dead tree right outside your fifth-story window, looks you in the eye. This seems to you like a good sign. A month later, the law student sends you an invitation to her wedding in Kenya. There's a photo, and the two of them are dressed in what you assume is traditional Kenyan jump-offs. She looks very thin, and she's wearing a lot of makeup. You expect a note, some mention of what you did for her, but there is nothing. Even the address was typed on a computer. Maybe it's a mistake, you say. It wasn't a mistake, Arleni assures you. Elvis tears the invite up, throws it out the truck window. Fuck that bitch. Fuck all bitches. You manage to save a tiny piece of the photo. It's of her hand. You work harder than you've ever worked at everything. The teaching, your physical therapy, your regular therapy, your reading, your walking. You keep waiting for the heaviness to leave you. You keep waiting for the moment you never think about the ex again. It doesn't come. You ask everybody you know, how long does it usually take to get over it? There are many formulas. One year for every year you dated, two years for every year you dated. It's just a matter of willpower. The day you decide it's over, it's over. You never get over it. One night that winter, you go out with all the boys to a ghetto-ass Latin club in Mattapan Square. Murder fucking pan. Outside, it's close to zero, but inside, it's so hot that everybody's stripped down to their t-shirts, and the funk is as thick as a fro. There's a girl who keeps bumping into you. You say to her, pero mi amor, ya, and she says, ya yourself. She's Dominican and lithe and super tall. I could never date anyone as short as you, she informs you very early on in your conversations. But she gives you her number at the end of the night. All evening, Elvis sits at the bar, quietly drinking shot after shot of Remy. The week before, he took a quick solo trip to the DR, a ghost recon. Didn't tell you about it until after. He tried looking for the mom and Elvis Jr., but they had moved and no one knew where they were. None of the numbers he had for her worked. I hope they turn up, he says. I hope so, too. You take the longest walks. Every ten minutes you drop and do squats or push-ups. It's not running, but it raises your heart rate better than nothing. Afterward, you are in so much nerve pain that you can barely move. Some nights you have neuromancer dreams where you see the ex and the boy and another figure, familiar, waving at you in the distance. Somewhere very close, the laugh that wasn't laughter. And finally, when you feel you can do so without blowing into burning atoms, you open a folder you have kept hidden under your bed. The Doomsday Book. Copies of all the emails and the photos from the cheating days. The ones the ex found and compiled and mailed to you a month after she ended it. Dear Junior, 
for your next book. Probably the last time she wrote your name. You read the whole thing cover to cover. Yes, she put covers on it. You are surprised at what a fucking chicken shit coward you are. It kills you to admit it, but it's true. You are astounded by the depths of your mendacity. When you finish the book a second time, you say the truth. You did the right thing, Negra. You did the right thing. She's right. This would make a killer book, Elvis says. The two of you have been pulled over by a cop and are waiting for Officer Dickhead to finish running your license. Elvis holds up one of the photos. She's Colombian, you say. He whistles. <whistles> que viva Colombia. Hands you back the book. You really should write The Cheater's Guide to Love. You think? I do. It takes a while. You see the tall girl. You go to more doctors. You celebrate Arleni's Ph.D. defense. And then one June night, you scribble the ex's name and the half-life of love is forever. You bust out a couple more things, then you put your head down. The next day, you look at the new pages. For once, you don't want to burn them or give up writing forever. It's a start, you say to the room. That's about it. In the months that follow, you bend to the work because it feels like hope, like grace, and because you know in your lying cheater's heart that sometimes a start is all we ever get. The End You've been listening to This Is How You Lose Her by Juno Diaz, narrated by the author. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books recommends The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chbosky, narrated by Noah Galvin. More intimate than a diary, Charlie's letters are singular and unique, hilarious and devastating. We may not know where he lives. We may not know to whom he is writing. All we know is the world he shares. Caught between trying to live his life and trying to run from it puts him on a strange course through uncharted territory. The world of first dates, family dramas and new friends, the world of sex, drugs and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, when all one requires is that perfect song on that perfect drive to feel infinite. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So visit us at recordedbooks.com to learn about our latest releases and special offers. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. <laughs>